Judges and Ruth, that we're calling Deliverance in the Darkness. And uh, you know, thus far in Joshua, God has brought his people into the land that he promised them and helped them settle. And here at the end of the book, Joshua is uh, calling God's people to, to live in a right relationship with God, to live faithfully. And uh, the chapter, chapter 24, asks a pretty simple question. How do you love God with your whole heart for your whole life? That's the question. How do you love God with your whole heart for your whole life? And even though it's simple, it's still so important that uh, I said last week I'm splitting the message into two. So we, we tackled this a little bit last week. So at some point I'll retreat and pick that up a little bit. And then uh, we'll finish it up today. So I'm not going to read all of chapter 24, but I'm going to act like I am. So uh, let's start in verse 1. And then we'll skip around a little bit and finish it up. So Joshua 24. I didn't say that well at all. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, heads, judges, and officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And what happens over the next uh, nine or ten verses is God recounts all the ways that he brought his people from just one man, Abraham in Canaan, to be an entire nation uh, now back in the land, actually in the same place, in Shechem, uh, 400 years later, which includes him delivering them from slavery and and wonderful works of power. So we're going to pick up now in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples whom we passed? And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he's our God. But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God, a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And so he sent the people away every man to his inheritance. All right, I'm going to pray. If you would like, you can join me. Great Father, we ask that here at the end of the week, 
We're tired. In the middle of the semester, we're worn. You would be kind to meet with us and to renew us and refresh us. To lift up our eyes and hearts to see you and uh, to know you and your love and uh, to be made new by you again. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask a very simple question and jump right into a story. I just want this question to be in the back of your heads as we get moving along. Do you think commitment is beautiful? That's the question. Do you think commitment is beautiful? Okay. Now I want to talk about me. Um, one of the very, I know some of you, actually, especially if you're newish, you have no idea who I am or why I'm doing what I do. And so it's often the case that new people are like, are you a professor? Actually, I, I met this guy in the gym. We've known each other for a year. We're very friendly. We like similar things. I feel like I'm talking to a version of myself. And just the other day, he's like, what do you do again? And I was like, I'm a pastor. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. He's like, where? Like, at, on campus, here. He's like, dude, I thought you worked in computers. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, that's, that, that's a guy I thought we were sort of friendly. And uh, so I'm a pastor, and uh, one of the very best things I like about my job is something most of you haven't seen me do, and that is weddings. I love doing weddings. For, and there's lots of reasons why I love doing weddings. Uh, one, the, the general excitement to uh, having everyone together, and by everyone I mean like years and years of students. Like you all graduate and walk away, and that, there's no guarantee I'll ever see you again. So uh, having students come back and having everyone in the room together, man, it's just a lot of fun. Um, third, another reason I really like it is I get to do this really cool thing where I'm literally in the middle of everything and yet completely invisible. I've officiated weddings where afterwards people were like, were you at that wedding? I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, really? Where were you? I was like, right between the bride and the groom. Actually, I did everything. You looked at me the whole time and never saw me. Um, that, that's actually, I really like that. Um, but what I enjoy the very most, actually, is, is to see these two people that, that I've known actually for years uh, come separately, not just down the aisles. It's like one comes from one place and one comes from another. But literally, to come together from like different hometowns, different stories, and to come together on that day separately and then leave as one. To leave together as one. To walk back down the aisle as everyone celebrates their unity. And I get to be a part of their, their mutual binding. Listen to these vows. These are vows that uh, a, couple, a couple years ago former RUFers made to one another. I'm actually going to use the real names I, Jonathan Alexander Hines, take you, Rebecca Ann Domico, to be my wife before God and these witnesses, to be your loving, dedicated, and faithful husband, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And then she turned around and said a similar thing. If you sit down and you study those verses, those words really carefully, what sticks out is the mutual, they're both taking these vows, completely exclusive. It's just you and me forever. No one else, lifelong, no matter what, binding to one another that happens. They come in as two, they leave as one, and everyone celebrates. It's beautiful. Even the most cynical person in the, in the church, usually at that time, will at least keep their mouth shut and, and, and celebrate. I think it's really interesting because as a culture and as individuals, we are pretty cynical and maybe even scared of commitment. And yet we still celebrate commitment, at least on this occasion, because we recognize that it can be beautiful. 
and we realize that it has potential and hope. So I, I think we celebrate it because we know deep down that commitment is the shape of love. Commitment is the shape of love. It's the nature of love to commit. To put it simply, love commits. Okay? So uh, here we have a God who loves his people, and he expects commitment from them. And the question then that Judges is asking here at the end, excuse me, Joshua is asking here at the end is, how do we love the Lord well with our whole heart for our whole life? How do we live committed lives, loving committed lives? And uh, we're going to say in our text that if we're going to live in a loving, committed relationship with the Lord, it begins with knowing his commitment. Knowing his commitment. So uh, what we're going to do today is go back for just a minute and talk about last week. We're going to rehearse the gospel, and then we're going to study the call for our commitment, and then lastly, his commitment. Okay? So last week, if you were here or if you weren't, I'm going to do the two-minute version of what I did in 30 minutes last week. In verses 1 through 13, after Joshua gets all the people together, God speaks, and what God gives them is a personal history lesson. He tells them all the ways he led them as his people, and it was literally all the way, like from Shechem and one man, all the way 400 years to now, we're back under the tree, I've made all these promises, I've made you a great nation, and I brought you every step of the way. And they did it all by grace. You go back and read the rest of uh, the Pentateuch, and you'll see These people didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They jeopardized it over and over by their unfaithfulness. And and it's said really explicitly a number of times. You are stubborn, stiff-necked people. It's not because you're more numerous or better than any other nation that I chose you. It's because I loved you. So all the way, all by grace, God brings his people. And uh, what we see in these 13 verses is just sort of a description of the way he powerfully saved them and protected them and provided for them. And verse 13 is a great little summary of that. You know, now you're here. I gave you a land on which you'd not labored in cities. You didn't build and you dwell on them. And you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. Everything you have, people, everything I've given you, all of it was purely by grace because of my love. You didn't earn any of it. And that's really important. Uh, this was true for the people of Israel, and if, if we uh, are going to take Jesus seriously, we need to know our Christian lives operate in the same way. That if we have a relationship with him, and he's good and kind to us, it's purely on the basis of his love and grace. Not because we've earned it, not because we're better than others, because he's loving and gracious by nature. So, this is the important part. I just finished one point in like two and a half minutes. That's a record. So, moving on to the next one, before we can even begin to talk about our commitment or anything that's asked of us in any way, it starts with his grace. It starts with what he has done, okay? So we have this long account of what he's done, and then, here in verse 14, God begins to call his people to commitment. Verse 14, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And I hate I hate saying this because other people say this like it's clever. Ah, I'm going to say it anyway. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for. So, and uh, it, it is telling us that before we really begin to consider what it means to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, we need to make sure that we're doing so in response to what's gone before, which is, is his great grace. This 
responsibility that we're being called to here, being called to, is a response. I'll say it again. This responsibility of loving the Lord is a response to his great love. And what God is calling them to is a committed love. Verse 14, simply, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And if you were to read carefully, like the next five, ten verses, you would see the word serve show up like seven or eight times. That may not sound like love and faithfulness to you. It may sound like a bad job. Um, But that's not at all the way it was intended. It was meant to be a holistic, dedicated uh, relationship. That's what they meant by the word serve. And uh, again, commitment here is the shape of love. God is calling his people to be committed to him. Now, if that sounds awful to you, like some terrible job that you don't want to do, uh, look carefully at what he's saying. Serve the Lord in sincerity. That's really important. See that? In sincerity. That means from the heart. That means because you love him. That doesn't mean you do it because it's a job. You do it because you love him. Genuinely from the heart. Not like you mean it. No, you mean it. It's not like you mean it. No, you're not acting. You, you serve him because you love him. From a true heart of love and devotion. And in faithfulness. Faithfulness means a couple things. Exclusivity, him alone, for the rest of my life. Lifelong. With your whole life. And it involves, uh, so that involves heart, sincerity, your heart. And faithfulness involves, like, your life, your actions, your body. And then uh, what happens next in verse 15? He tells us, choose. Choose who you're going to serve. And, man, I love this because I think Joshua's being really realistic. He's saying you've got some options. You've got options. You've got the gods of your fathers. And he doesn't mean, like, like right across the river, like, a couple days ago. He means, like, hey, your fathers were pagans that lived a long ways away, and uh, they worshiped their gods, and you guys still sort of are tied to them. And then you have all the gods of the Amorites. You're surrounded by them. You know, pick one. The old family gods or, like, the new cool cultural gods around you. He's being realistic. Like, hey, you're going to worship someone. And so what we find here is loving God, being committed, means loving him with your heart and your body and your mind and your will. It takes all of you, every part of you, to love God. And uh, it's coming back to that choice thing. Choosing, choosing means cutting. It means eliminating options. You know, I, I'd like to think, and this certainly did not happen, I'd like to think like the day I proposed to my wife that like hundreds of women around the world realized oh, it's no longer an option. Because they know I'd cut it off. The reality was it was more like, oh, how did, how did that happen? Ah, <laughs> oh, she's a Russian. You ordered her on the mail. I did not order her. I met her. And essentially, people are like, you came back with this Russian. All of it, it was really quick. You, you met her online, right? It's like, ah, no, I did not. Anyway, it was far from hundreds of women being disappointed that I had cut off all my options. Here's the point. I'm not just talking about me. When you choose the Lord, you're cutting off your options. That's what he's saying. Choose who you're going to serve. You can't keep your options open. You can't serve the Lord of your fathers and the gods of the nations around you and the Lord. Choose. Pick one. Make a choice. And he's calling them to cut out the competing loves. Verse 14. Put away your gods. Verse 20. If you forsake me and go after other gods, 
He says, basically, I'm going to have to crush you. Verse 23, again, put away the foreign gods among you. And it's easy for the people that he's speaking to, the Israelites, to say, oh, we did that 30 years ago. Like, all the idols, the gold, silver things, like, we, we got rid of them. Like, after you, you smoked that guy Achan, uh, we're like, yeah, yeah, we're not messing around with him anymore. Um, so we got rid of those. And, and God makes it really clear through Joshua here, no, no. Not the ones you hide under your tent, the ones you hide in your heart. I think that's partly what he means in verse 23. He says, get rid of your gods, your idols, and incline your heart. Not just the idols that are statues that you're tempted to bow down to. No, the idols that you, there reside deep in your heart, unseen, and that easily deceive you and others. And just to point out quickly how these might break in your life and around you, he gives a couple options earlier. Hey, choose which God you want, the gods of your fathers or the gods of the Amorites. And this is just an example. But, but so often, the idols in our heart are adopted. Adopted. They're adopted culturally from the gods of our fathers, i.e. tradition. The tradition handed down to us from our family or a church and can easily get mixed up. So the Bible, I'll just give an example. The Bible is some version of the American Constitution and the right to bear arms. And this equals God supports it all. Or the gods of the Amorites. What is plausible, reasonable, and assumed to be moral right now in our current culture. And so what is right is lots of other different rights. And the right to do whatever you want and be whoever you want and decide what you want to be. And God says that's okay because everybody else says that's okay. You see how that can work? And it's so easy to sneak into our own hearts because we're surrounded by it. We grow up, we grow up in it. We're surrounded by it all the time. And, and God's saying, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily either one of those. I am who I am, and I've revealed myself. And so you've got to search. If, you're, if, you're, if you really know me and my love, you have to search your heart and find those idols and root them out and cut them off. So I'll ask you, do you know of any of these hidden things in your heart? I'll start with this. Let's exploratory diagnostic. Uh, what can't you live without? And I'm not saying, like, your iPhone is an idol, although it might be. Um, what are you unwilling to give up? So your iPhone is probably not an idol, but the need for constant entertainment might be. Um, how do you find them? I, I would say one great way to find your hidden idols is whenever you're angry or fearful, chase it. What makes you angry and, and afraid? What's under that? Peel away the layers. There's something wrong down there. Something you're afraid of. And it's a good, it's a good possibility. It's an idol. I, I, uh, I'm not so great with feelings. Uh, either anger, fear, or any other ones. So I'm a little slow chasing things down. But over the years, I've come by chasing these things to realize that one of my hidden idols, deep in my heart, is competency competency. And I realized this by coming to the conclusion, I don't really think I'm afraid of things, but there's just a lot of things I won't do. Why won't I do them? Because I think I'll look like a fool. Why does that bother me? Because I don't ever want to look like a fool. Because I want to be competent. I want to be respected. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, unless it becomes a huge thing in your life where you make major life decisions that's more important than anything else. 
Hence, competency is an idol in my life. So chase your fear or anger and see what's down there. Uh, another way you can find out what your idols are is uh, you can try some on and see if they fit. Maybe it's competency for you. I'll give you a couple more. If you haven't noticed, all the points here are, start with the letter C. So uh, here you go. There's some more. Competency, maybe? Or comfort? Or control? Any one of those fit? Can you live without them? And here's the third way you can find out the idols of your heart. This one really sucks. Ask someone. Ask someone to be honest with you and say, honestly, it has to be someone that knows you and loves you enough to tell you the truth. You can ask them, honestly, what am I all about but don't know? What am I all about but I I don't know it. I can't see it. So this call that that Joshua is issuing here to cut these things off it's scary, and uh, we don't like it because we tend to like our idols. Um, they sort of fit with us, and they make us feel good, and we don't want to give them up. But, but commitment means cutting them off, and that's the shape of love. And, and commitment makes beautiful things. It does make beautiful things. I have a great example of this, actually, and some of you may have seen this. All right, I'm going to make a confession, though. Uh, if you were with me over the fun retreat, I, I basically... Lambasted is a little bit uh, strong word. I, I largely dismiss the Winter Olympics because there's like not, no sport that I would consider even a sport. That's sort of what I said, but it's not true. They're sports. They're just sports I can't cons- I can't imagine myself playing. It's like a bunch of aliens invented sports. That's what it looks like when I watch winter sports. Like I can't imagine myself ever doing any of those things. So um, I just have a hard time like getting excited about it because I it's like what is happening there? I can't imagine that. Here's the confession. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this one winter sport yesterday. Maybe you saw it. It was the Olympic women's cross-country team sprint. Do you see this? Yes, yes. So if you have not seen this, after the, this is over, you should go watch it. Basically what happens is this. You need to know that this is probably going to hurt at least one person's feelings. Yours, I suppose. Cross-country skiing, I think, is probably long and boring. Um, this sprint took at least 16 minutes so that means it's long and boring and um you know i ran distance i ran distance and i didn't want to run it or watch it i would never watch me run a distance event it's like boring and awful so uh this is much much longer and unless you're an olympic skier uh like you're not gonna like really enjoy the form or even be like wow they're going so fast because this is not downhill skiing where you're like they're going miles an hour if they slip they're gonna die now this is like there's a you know it's like that bus crash kind of thing it's like watching nascar almost um this is cross-country skiing you know it's like it's like watching a marathon a little bit um it's just a little boring except for this race wasn't uh with after untold miles it's it's a three-team race with a lap to go including the americans who've never won a medal in this event in like 50 years and uh, the American team is, uh, I can't pronounce her name, Kicken. I'm going to say Kicken because that sounds like a great name. Uh, Kicken Randall and Jesse Diggins. And as they enter the last lap, they are neck and neck. Um, high drama. And, and what makes the next minute of this thing so compelling, 
again, um, unless you're a long-distance skier, it's not like the skiing itself. It's not the form or even how fast they're going because you can't really tell. I don't know what's fast in cross-country skiing. What makes this compelling is their commitment. It's their commitment. They're laying it all on the line. It's just clear. It's, this is lung-bursting, side-splitting, lay it all down, sprint to the end after like 15 miles or something. And uh, man, it's compelling drama. And if you think about it, you're like, no, no, this is more than just 16 minutes of suffering. This is like four years. See, they're excited about the race too. <laughs> this is like four years of commitment, of, of choices being made, of cuts being made. I'm, I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to do that. Hard decisions, commitment made for this race. I say all that just to say commitment can be compelling. It can make beautiful things, but it is incredibly hard. So one of the things I do before I marry a couple is I ask them to meet with me for like four to six months. Not straight. You know, we meet occasionally um, for, for premarital counseling. And here's the kicker. During that time, I will try, if at all possible, to break them up. I know. Cruel, right? How could you? Well, it's simply pretty easy, actually. If, uh, if Derek is harder, if Derek's hard, life is harder. If I can break them up, life will certainly do so. And uh, what I'm doing here is testing how realistic they are, how committed they are, if they actually know one another. And, and I've never actually successfully broken any couple up, although I wish I had succeeded with one of them. Um, I was right. They, within a year, they were divorced. More like within four or five months. Um, what almost always happens, except for that one instance, is my attempt to break them up while causing a mini crisis actually provokes them to deeper, profound self-examination. They become more realistic and they come back recommitted, but realistically so. It's actually really good. And I think it's exactly what Joshua was doing in this text. When he says in verse 19 through 20, hey, you, you can't obey the Lord. Yes, we can. Uh, no, you can't. You can't. And he's holy, and you have your idols, and he's going to crush you. I, I think he's doing a version of saying, like, okay, you can make your New Year's resolution December 28th while you're eating bonbons and recovering from three days ago's turkey. But are you going to be committed in February when it's snowing and you're busy? Are you going to be committed then? Um, he's, he's telling them to be realistic. He's calling them to acknowledge it's going to be much harder than they think. And he's provoking them to be realistic and to recommit themselves. And uh, I think that means we need to acknowledge that we can't be faithful to God with our whole heart to the end on our own. That's where he wants to move them to. You can't do this on your own. All right, that's all one point. This next point is going to take five or six minutes, okay? We can't be faithful to God with our whole heart for our whole life on our own. We need help. And that's where we turn and consider not our commitment, but his commitment. His commitment, and it sort of of begins to become clearer in uh, verses 25 to 28. I can ignore them. I don't know if you can, though. Uh, I have children. I can ignore anyone. Uh, consider, consider, 
how this whole text starts back in verse 3. He calls the people to himself because he has a relationship with them. He has a relationship with Israel because they're his people. And he reminds them, how did this all start? I chose Abraham. He was a wandering idolater. I, I chose him. I took your father Abraham while he was still an idolater. I brought him to myself. I made promises to him. And out of all the nations that could have been mine, all the glorious big ones, the glorious wonderful ones, I chose you out of my love. And we need to remember that for, for Christians, or we're interested in Christianity, that, that it begins with grace. It begins with him calling us to himself despite what we deserve. Not because we deserve it, but because he's loving and gracious. It starts with his choice. And then as it regards committed love, he calls us to committed love, but he does not call us something to something that he himself is not. He is the best example of committed love we're ever going to have. When he calls us to love him sincerely and faithfully, that's exactly how he loves us. He loves his people from the heart forever. Is he faithful? Yes. He makes a promise to Abraham and he keeps it no matter what. He's faithful to all his promises. That's one of the reasons he's doing this here. Hey, 400 years ago, I made a promise to your father Abraham under this tree right here. Now we're all back here. See, faithful to my promises. And uh, when you put these two together, he's sincerely loving from the heart. He's faithful to all his promises. We're reminded of these two qualities that the Bible tells us God is all the time. Gracious and truthful. Full of grace and truth. This is what he's like. He is sincere and faithful. And you see that in verse 25 with this making of a covenant. You see that language? This making of a covenant. It says Joshua made a covenant. Joshua didn't make a covenant. He mediated the covenant. This is important. I know I've been talking for a while. What's going on here is really, really interesting. You be quiet. Now. Stop. Um, First of all, What's happening with this covenant is God is willingly entering into a mutually binding agreement with his people. He's making promises. They're making obligations. He's making obligations. Hey, let me ask you something. If you were a God, would you ever make a promise? If you were a king in complete control, you owned everything, would you ever make a promise? You wouldn't need to. You could just make demands and obligations. We have here a God who makes promises and takes obligations on himself and willingly binds himself to the people. There's no other God. I, I challenge you to find another God anywhere that does this, that enters into a binding agreement with his people. And you see a wonderful picture of this in Genesis. In uh, chapter 15, after he makes his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, in chapter 15, he, he visits Abraham And he reiterates the promise. Hey, I know you're an old dude with a wife that can't have kids. I'm going to make you a great nation anyway. You're going to have a baby. They're going to have babies. More babies. Lots of babies. Great nation. This land will be yours. And uh, in that chapter, he makes a covenant, which means he makes promises. There's obligations. And the word make a covenant actually in Hebrew means cut a covenant. You cut a covenant. And you see that in chapter 15 because God pulls together sacrifices cuts them in half, and you split them. And that is supposed to signify, if I break the terms of this covenant, may this happen to me. If either one of us, you or me, break the terms, the obligations, may we be cut in half. That's really important, okay? So here again, God is entering into a covenant and saying, hey, if I break my part of the, of the covenant, may I be broken. And what we have happening in the Bible is that because we can't be faithful as we're supposed to. 
he is cut off. That's the story of the Bible. That's what happens. Because God's people can't keep the covenant like we're supposed to. Because we break it over and over. God willingly is broken for us. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus willingly did that. He was cut off. We deserved it. He was cut off in our place. We broke the covenant. He suffered for us because he loved us. He, had, he didn't have to do it. We're the ones that broke it. But he did it anyway because he loved us, because he's that committed to the relationship. So how do we incline our hearts? That's the language of Joshua. How do we move our hearts? Some of you are like, dude, I'm tired. I get it. You're going on forever. I know. I know I am. I'm sorry. But here's the deal. How do, you, how do you make your heart love God? How do you make your heart love him? You, you know he's, he loves you. He's died for you. You sort of know deep down, I really should care about this more than I do. I really should give up some of those things. How do you move your heart? How do you incline your heart? You rehearse the gospel. You've got to remember all the great things he's done. But you also have to be remembering his commitment. You have to remember that he, he was so committed to his relationship with you and his people that he willingly died for you. He, he took, when you, were, when you were faithless, he was faithful, and he willingly died for you in order to bring you to life. And when you remind yourself of those things, you are renewed. You are re-energized for living for him. It helps you to love him more. So the Bible actually gives us a race illustration, a metaphor. It's Hebrews 12. I'm going to finish with this. Hebrews 12 tells us that our life is like a long ski race. Um, It tells us, I'm going to read it. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, you know, people are watching us. That's both accountability and cheering. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That is, hey, find out those things in your life and cut them off so you can run and love freely. And let's run with endurance the race set before us. That's what it looks like to live faithfully, loving for God, to run after him and pursue him. Looking to Jesus as you do so is what it says. The founder and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to hang right there for a second. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That means he ran this race. That's what the language is saying. It's like this life, he he lived this life. He ran this race. He did what he's calling us to. And so when you go and watch that clip of that race, (laughs) that crazy ski race, one of the reasons you'll find it so compelling is not just because the participants were so committed. They're clearly committed. They're putting everything on the line. It's because the commentators, the commentators are so committed. Uh, They're both all in on it, and one of them particularly so. They're both really excited. One is hoarsely yelling. Not like a horse. Like his, his, His voice is shot. He's yelling, They're completely gassed! They've given everything they've got! And then like 20 seconds later, can Diggins answer? Here comes Diggins. And he's basically like screaming over the other commentator. And the other commentator must just, just be quiet. You're wasting your time. And as, uh, as Diggins draws alongside, inches, and begins to inch ahead, he's, he's screaming, yes, yes, yes. And as he crosses the line, he just simply yells, gold, like, like one of those annoying soccer announcers. Um, <laughs> And it's amazing. And as you, as you listen to the clip, you, you, if you're a reasonable person, you, ask two, you, you think two things. This guy's crazy 
or he's committed. He's committed. And when you look up the commentator, you find out he's committed. He was on the U.S. Olympic team between 1990 and 1998. He coaches cross-country skiing for a living. This is what he does. <laughs> he knows. And that's important. Uh, I was reading through some of the comments about this video. <laughs> I love this one. Someone wrote, I just want someone to love me the way that an announcer loves skiing. <laughs> Which is, you read that and you're like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, if, if our Christian life is a race and we're called to lay aside every weight and run before witnesses, we need to know that we're loved by someone like this announcer. It's Jesus. He's run this race. He's not merely a spectator. He's not just a commentator. He ran this. He's a participant in the race. He's done this. And so verse 2 in Hebrews concludes, Look to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus ran this race for us, which included the cross. He knew it. He knew it included death. And he did it for the joy set before him. What is that? It's you. It's bringing you, his people, back into a right relationship with him. It's because he loved his people that he did that. If you want to live faithfully for God, if you want to grow in your love for him, you cannot get away from this. It's the good news of what he's done. It's his great commitment for you, given in his life for you. We have to come back to that over and over and over. And as we do that, that will enable us to run for him and to live for him. All right, let's pray. Good Lord, I thank you for the students. I thank you uh, for the strength you gave them to endure uh, this semester and even this message. And pray, Lord, you would help us to see more clearly.